book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. We will begin in verse 12. I, uh, as I went to the back at the beginning of service, um, I noticed something I've noticed before, but it is way quieter back in the back than it is up here. And uh, I think I also noticed that the people back there don't sing quite as loud because of that. And so uh, let me encourage you folks in the back not to single you out, but I'm going to. Uh, you guys should get here earlier, and you should come and join us up in the front. Because let me tell you, sitting up in the front gives you a confidence to sing out, sing boldly, uh, sing with such confidence that sometimes Robert doesn't even have to be singing, and, and you just jump in and sing. That's what I do sometimes. Uh, so just let me give you that word of encouragement. If you would like to, uh, to have a little more confidence in your singing, uh, come and fill up some of these front pews. Don't be shy. It's great up here. Well, I'm so glad to, uh, to have you all here with me today and to begin, or not begin, to continue uh, through the book of Acts as we have begun a few weeks ago. And now we come uh, to this portion of the book of Acts, a, a portion I think that um, could be easily skimmed over. A portion that maybe appears to us to be simple data, simple information of what was happening. Uh, and it can be difficult, I think, for us at times to see the value for us as Christians here today in the text that we have before us today. But my hope is that um, our minds will change on that and we will see the value of every ounce of Scripture, even the mundane, even what seems to be insignificant to us Hopefully we will see that here in Acts chapter 1. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Then they returned to, Jer to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being from the beginning from the baptism of John until the end, excuse me, until the day when he was taken up, none of these men, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, 
and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come today before you. Lord, we come to study your word. Lord, we come today asking for your guidance and for your help as we do so. Lord, I pray today that we would be encouraged and that we would be challenged as we study the life of the early church, as we see what was going on here, Lord, may it uh, give us insight into how it is that we today ought to act and ought to behave and how we ought to worship you, Lord. I pray as we study the church, Lord, that we would be not only encouraged, Lord, that we would also be challenged as we compare ourselves and how we behave, how we act to those that we see in the book of Acts. Lord, most of all, may we imitate Christ as these apostles and these disciples did here in Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love cool origin stories. And I, I do mean uh, to include origin stories of superheroes like Batman and Superman and, and all of these others. But even more than origin stories of superheroes, I really enjoy hearing about origin stories of real-life people. People who started from nothing, who came from humble beginnings, and yet went on to do something great, do something amazing, become something enormous. It almost seems unbelievable at times when we hear some of these stories of people who came virtually from nothing into whether it be uh, worldwide fame or, or doing something great for their country or for the church or whether it be um, uh, uh, making something that is now a household uh, item, a household convenience. These kinds of, of origin stories that start at humble beginnings are, are pretty fun to read, pretty cool to, to hear about, far better, honestly, than, than those of Marvel or DC because I mean, anyone can write a, a story of a terrible, humble beginning, and then they rose to greatness. It's made up. It's, story. it's a story. It's fake. But when we read of real life, humble beginnings, and those who came out of that to something awesome, it's more encouraging. We think of, of people like Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey was, was born into a very poor life. She lived with her grandmother and had almost nothing, barely two pennies to rub together, and she became one of the most wealthy women in the world. Or someone like Steve Jobs, who along with that other guy that no one remembers, started Apple in his garage. Started with nothing. And now, almost every single person across the world knows what an iPhone is. Or think about Owl City. If you're familiar with the band Owl City, their huge hit Fireflies a few years ago, if you were roughly my age, and that came out when you were... Uh, around high school, and I don't know why, but it became a hit. It was a sensation. And Owl City, this band, started out as one guy in his parents' basement, making music on his computer. We hear about these stories of, of humble beginnings, people starting out with nothing, starting a business out of their garage or out of their basement and going on becoming something amazing. We have before us today here in the book of Acts, the most amazing, the most beautiful, the most glorious story of humble beginnings that turned into something great. When we look at the early church in Acts, as we are making our way through the early, early chapters in Acts and all the way through the book, what we see 
is this amazing movement, this amazing work, the indeed expansion of the kingdom of God. But what we have here in Acts chapter 1 is where it began, the humble beginnings of the start of the church. And here in these humble beginnings, what we really see at work is the providence of God. It, we, we see the providence of God all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old, New Testament, throughout Acts chapter 1, all the way through the end of the book. The providence of God is on full display, and yet I find it to be most encouraging when I read of these stories to see how all the time, all the way along, it was the providence of God, it was his sovereignty that made this happen. And so we will see the providence of God at work today, and we'll see it in three ways as we make our way through this passage today. First of all, we will see the providence of God in the unity of the disciples. We will see the providence of God in the tragedy of Judas. And we will see the providence of God in the selection of the apostle. First of all, the unity of the disciples. Only by a divine work of a sovereign God could this group of men and women have been brought together as the church that was started in the book of Acts. Even if you, if you consider just the apostles themselves, it truly is amazing and sort of contrary to what we might think or expect that these men were all found to be together, unified with one another. First of all, judging just from the fact that only a few weeks earlier when Jesus was crucified, these very same men were all terrified and scattered. And yet now we see them here unified after Christ's ascension. But even more than just what we've seen from them already, it's amazing to me that these men would come together to form the apostles, that the Lord would use to establish his church. As we read in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It is upon these men that the church is going to expand, that it is going to grow. These men who established the word of God for us even still today. And just consider for a moment even the diversity that we see among the disciples. Matthew, this guy also known as Levi, he was a tax collector. Now, if you don't know what a tax collector was in this day, it was someone who worked essentially for the Roman government. They worked for the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people, from the Jews. And it was up to them. The reason they were oftentimes hated was that their paycheck essentially came from how much extra they could get from the Jews before they gave what they owed to Rome. Whatever extra they could get out of their brethren, the other Jews, the Hebrews around them, that was theirs to keep. And they only had to give a certain amount to the Roman Empire. But everything extra above that was theirs to keep. You could see how that is a, a recipe for extortion. And not only is it a recipe for extortion, but in the mind of many of the Jews, they were oppressed by the Roman government. They did not seek to be occupied by the Roman government. And now there were some among them who were working for the Roman government. These were oftentimes some of the most hated people in Israel. And what do we see? Matthew himself, a tax collector, was one of the apostles that Jesus Christ chose upon which to build the church. But what makes that even more amazing and even more interesting is that another guy who's listed in our list here in Acts and also in the, the Gospels is a guy named Simon. What is Simon described as? He's a zealot. 
Now, we might not feel the full weight of what it means to be called a zealot. But what this means is that where you have Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, on one side who is, who is working for the Roman government, this guy Simon is on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum. He is a guy who seeks to overthrow the Roman government, who seeks to, by whatever means necessary, be out from underneath the boot of the Romans. And yet these two men, one who seeks to overthrow this government, one who was working for this government, now find themselves unified together under the banner of Christ as apostles. It almost sounds like a, like a joke, doesn't it? A tax collector, a zealot, and a fisherman walk into a bar. But it's not a joke. This is actually, these are actually the men that Christ chose to establish the church. The fact that there is unity among these men, not only these men only, but even all who are there, the, the 120 that are there, speaks to the sovereignty of God at work. This could only happen by God's sovereignty, couldn't it? I mean, when we think about our political setting today, it is extremely rare, extremely difficult to find a way to bring together people from two opposite ends of a political spectrum. And yet that's exactly what Christ has done here in the Apostles. Yet, Luke says that they were all of one accord. They were all of one mind, that there was no division among them. There was nothing between them that was causing a rift, that was, that was causing disunity, but they were all of one accord. So these men and these women go back to Jerusalem. And what were they going back to Jerusalem to do? To do exactly what Jesus had told them to do, to wait. This is what they were going back to Jerusalem to do. Jesus told them back in chapter, in uh, verse uh, 4, he says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So they were going now back to Jerusalem, back with the mission, the uh, order to wait. The Lord made them wait. Now, we, we don't know the mind of the Lord we don't know what exactly all of his purposes were in this. And therefore, we can't say with great precision what all of his purposes are in this delay and making them wait. But what we can say confidently is that this waiting that he commanded them to do was for their good. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. That everything is for our good, for the good of those who love God and according and, and oh, excuse me, and are called according to his purpose. It seems likely, though, as, as John Calvin points out in his, uh, his commentary on this passage, that the Lord, was, Lord, in making them wait, was seeking to work patience in them. And indeed, I would say this is a good thing to work in the life of the apostles and the disciples, and something that, if we're honest in here today, we would say we all need to work on. Patience is not something that comes at all naturally to us as human beings. Now, I, I do think in certain ways we are maybe at a disadvantage than the, uh, than the people in this time were, as we now have uh, fast food and, and drive-throughs and uh, smartphones, and if a, a, a video on YouTube takes more than three seconds to load, we give up on it and say it's not worth it. Patience is not something that we value today in our culture, certainly not something that we work very hard to obtain or to grow in ourselves. 
And so it would be difficult for us to put ourselves in the, in the place of the apostles here to be told, hey, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. Because waiting is difficult. And yet all throughout the scriptures, what do we see? We see throughout all the scriptures that the Lord is good to those who wait. That patience is not only a good thing, it is commanded. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, we read, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, we see something similar. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Patience is a good thing, something that we ought to foster and grow in ourselves as difficult as it is. What we begin to realize, actually, is that waiting is a form of trusting. As hard as that is for us to get through our head, waiting is a form of trusting. There are many times we find ourselves in situations in life, whether it be situations with our family, whether it be situations with our job, where we have no other recourse but to wait. As much as we might want to do something else, we might want to do something to change our situation, to change our status, but so often all that we can do is wait. And that is so difficult for us. It is difficult in part because it's very hard for us to trust the Lord in that way. To trust that wherever we are in our station in life, that he has a plan for us. That he is working for us. That he is a God of justice. And that he is good to those who wait for him. Waiting is a form of trusting. In the same way, a dog. If you have a dog and have trained this dog to sit and stay. It's a very difficult thing to train a dog, and it takes a lot of time to work in most dogs. Well, we're, why, how is it that you train a dog to do this? You sit them down, and you say, stay, and you walk away. But if you, for the first time, were seeking to train your dog to stay, and you said, sit, stay, and then you walked away, and you never came back. For days and days, you just walked away, and you never came back. The dog would not stay, not even close. Why? Because he doesn't trust that you're going to come back. He has no reason to believe that. But if you work with that dog and you say, stay, and you walk away a few feet, and if he stays there, you say, good boy, and you reward him. You give him a treat. You give him affection. And then as time goes on, you, you tell him to stay, and you walk across the room, and you make him wait longer. And then after that, you reward him. You say, good job, good boy. You give him a, a treat. You give him affection. You can do that to the point where you can have dogs so well trained that you can tell them to stay and you could walk completely into another room for minutes and minutes and minutes and the dog will sit there and wait and stay. Why is it that the dog does that? Is it that the dog's getting smarter and smarter and smarter every time you do it and he understands the word stay better? Not really. It's because the dog trusts you. Because the dog knows that you are going to come back and that he is going to get that treat. There is a trust that's built that causes that dog to wait. I don't often want to compare us as Christians to dogs, and yet, if we trust the Lord, we will wait. Because whatever he has commanded us to do, as he has commanded the disciples here, go and wait in Jerusalem. They might have had a desire to go do something else. 
to move on to the next thing, maybe to get away from this place because things are still a little tense here. Things are still a little hot. I don't like this place where we are at. And yet they waited. Why did they wait? Because they trusted their Lord and Savior, the one who they had been with, who they had seen, who they had seen not only die, but then rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven. One who they trusted would come again as he promised them he would. So we are called to wait. We are called to trust the Lord and wait. But what is it that they did while they waited? The disciples didn't just sit around and, and twiddle their thumbs or, or play Sudoku puzzles. No, while they waited, they knew there were things that they ought to be doing. The first thing we see they did is what? They prayed. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus didn't command them to pray, certainly not explicitly here, as he said, go and wait. But what these disciples knew, what they desired to do as they waited, was to pray. All of them of one accord. And not just the apostles, but the whole church, the women, even Mary and Jesus, his brothers. I think this is a, a very cool addition here to have Mary and his brothers. If you recall from the gospel story Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But now what do we see? Even his brothers who doubted him were convinced that he was who he said he was after seeing him raised from the dead. And here all of them, the entire church, is dedicated in one accord to prayer. Is there anything better that we can fill our time with? This is a great example for us as well to commit ourselves to prayer in this way. When we find our ourselves with downtime, if you're like me, what do we often want to do? Nothing, right? I want to sit. I want to watch TV. I want to think about nothing. I want to do nothing. I want to let my brain turn off and turn nothing else on except the radio, the television, or my phone. How often is it that we, like the disciples, say, look, we have this time. Let us put it to good use. Let us spend time in prayer. Too often, we as Christians, I'm guilty of this, we relegate our prayer time to just before meals and maybe before bed. Maybe during service on Sunday mornings, maybe Bible studies, but that's it. We dedicate. We have these certain times when we pray. Okay, this is our time for prayer, and that's it. Outside of those times, our brains oftentimes don't even take us to that point. I would encourage us, as, as Paul commands the church, to pray without ceasing. That is, when we have time where we're doing nothing, wouldn't it be right of us to think in this way? What a good time to pray. I have nothing else to do. I think I'll pray. It's an amazing, amazing testimony that we have from the disciples, from the apostles. And I, I find it also interesting that we find Mary here along with uh, Jesus' brothers. And I, I find it very hard to believe that they were at all praying to Mary in this situation or that they were venerating her. Rather, she is right there along with them praying. She is right there along with them as she has watched not only the son that she gave birth to, but her savior ascending into the sky. All of these with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. The second way we see the providence of God is through the tragedy of Judas. In verses 15 through 20, we have this recounting of the story of Judas and his betrayal. As Peter 
stands up to speak. He, ad- he addresses our attention. He directs it back to this tragedy, this story of Judas. And he does this not in order to reopen wounds, not in order to make us feel the hurt again or make the other apostles or disciples feel the hurt again, though they likely did. This was one that they loved, the one that they were with for three years of ministry, the one that they were close to. He was their brother for all intents and purposes. And they are now reminded of this great betrayal that Judas committed. He does this not to reopen these wounds, but because he sees and they all understand that there is a situation that needs to be addressed. There is a vacancy that needs to be filled. Yet even in the recounting of this betrayal of Judas, we see the providence of God on display. What does Peter say in verse 16? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He says the scripture had to be fulfilled. He says there was prophecy in the book of Psalms saying that this would happen. This this prophecy is fulfilled in Judas. Even the tragedy of Judas and his betrayal is not outside of God's providence. It's not somehow a, a breach of God's sovereignty as though he didn't mean for this to happen. Even this is a part of God's sovereign plan. Which brings us to Maybe a question that many of us have had or heard, and that is something that the church has been dealing with for a long time, the problem of evil. There are many who see great evil in the world, and you could see no worse evil than that of Judas, who betrayed the Son of God, betrayed not only only the, the Son of God, the Messiah, but his friend. We see in this a great evil, and we look around the world and we see evil around us. And there are many who conclude if evil exists, then a good God who is all-powerful does not exist. The question goes, how could a God who is good allow evil? And therefore, many just conclude there must be no God. Or if there is a God, he is certainly not good. One really good treatment of this supposed dilemma, and there are plenty of good treatments of this, but one that I find to be very not only helpful, but easy to read, accessible, is found in Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God. In the book, in the chapter dealing with this question, he references an article that was written in 1982 by a philosopher named J.L. Mackey, who was, who was a proponent of this kind of argument against the existence of God. And in his article, J.L. Mackey says, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God, end quote. And as you hear this quote, maybe some of you have already spotted the problem with his argument. As Tim Keller goes on to point out the problem, the problem is that his argument makes an assumption. The argument assumes that if we cannot clearly see a point to the existence of evil, then there must not be any. And Tim Keller responds in the book by saying, just because we do not know of a point to the evil doesn't mean there is one. In fact, our God is so good, so sovereign, has a plan plan far beyond our comprehension that even in evil, it is not 
pointless. He is sovereign even over that, and all of it works according to his will. Take, for example, the betrayal of Judas. While, yes, what he did was a great evil, it came as no surprise to God. Not only that, it was ordained that it would happen this way, according to God's plan. Alvin Plantinga, he is a Christian philosopher. He makes many arguments for the existence of God. Very smart individual, far smarter than I am for sure. But he explains this dilemma or this problem, this sort of uh, false assumption that is made, assuming that if we can't see a point to evil, then there is no point. And he says it's like looking into a pup tent. If you've ever been camping, you, you know what a pup tent is. It's like looking into a pup tent for a St. Bernard. If you don't see a St. Bernard in that pup tent, then you can logically assume, rightly so, that there is no St. Bernard. None. But if you look into a pup tent for noceums, is anyone in here familiar with what a noceum is? A noceum is a teeny tiny little bug. And do you know how they got their name? Because you can't see them. They're literally super duper duper tiny. They're very, very hard to see. And yet this teeny tiny little bug can bite and it bites hard you will feel no seams far sooner than you will see no seams but he says if you look into a pup tent for no seams and you don't see a saint bernard that doesn't mean that there's not no seams in there he says many people are looking for a point to the evil the way they look for a saint bernard in a tent the way they look for no seams in a tent and because they don't see a saint bernard there must not be any no seams in there. No, indeed, there is no such thing as pointless evil in the world, for our God is sovereign even over that which is evil. And that gives us hope. It gives us hope to say all that happens in the world, none of it is a surprise to God. None of it has caught him off guard. In fact, he has a point in all of it. What is it that Joseph says to his brothers? You meant evil against me, but the Lord meant it for good. He has an intention in all things. His sovereignty is this great, that even the evil that we see around us serves his purposes. Even more than that, only Christianity has an answer for the evil in the world. There is no answer, no good solution to it, no good point to it outside of Christianity. Because only Christianity has an offer of restoration. That all things will one day be made right. Only Christianity offers a good and right answer to the problem of evil. Because outside of Christianity, evil still exists, right? It's not gone if you reject God. But what is gone is any hope. Any hope that things will be made right. Any hope that, that all that we see around us isn't pointless. Indeed, because we serve a sovereign God, we know that there is a point to all that happens. There is no such thing as pointless acts in the sovereignty of God. Then in the phrase in verse 17 says, he, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. This indicates the need that Peter is pointing out that the apostles recognize that they have to replace Judas. The Lord had intended for there to be 12 apostles and right now, they were one short. And so what were they to do? Again, in this time of waiting, they took this as an opportunity to fill this position. 
recognizing that because Judas was numbered among them, a part of the ministry was his. They needed to fill that spot so that the ministry would be appropriately shared among 12 apostles as the Lord had ordained. So we see point number three, God's providence in the selection of Matthias. In this passage here, we see what honestly, again, as I've said, could seem mundane, could seem almost pointless. As we read here in this story where they, where they begin the process, they set out the criteria for who could even be considered to be a replacement when they say in verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Therefore, not just any Christian was considered for apostleship, but only one who met these criteria, who had been with Jesus in his ministry all the way and who had seen his ascension, who had seen his resurrection. And so they begin narrowing these things down. They begin going through the process of replacing this disciple, this apostle. And honestly, it kind of looks to me like one of the first church business meetings. And if you've been to many church business meetings, you'll know that they're not really that fun. They're kind of boring. They're kind of mundane. Okay, selection of a new apostle. All right, let's work through it. Who's qualified? Who's not making our way through? And yet what we see here is that God is sovereign even in this. As they laid down the criteria, and then they, they narrowed it down to who was most qualified. In verse 23, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And this narrowing it down to two was not just them at random closing their eyes, you know, picking who they did and didn't want. It was them looking at the criteria, probably also looking at other qualifications such as character, such as ability to teach, all these various things, and saying, okay, we can rule out a bunch of these guys, and they narrow it down to these two men. And then after narrowing it down to these two men, what do they do? Verse 24 and 25, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. Here again, what do we see the apostles doing? Every step of the way, the disciples, Jesus' followers, are coming to him in prayer. Even in the mundane things, we are to go to the Lord in prayer constantly. If you're familiar with the, the story of the Israelites in the book of Joshua and the Gibeonite deception, what was the issue? Why is it that things went awry in the Gibeonite deception? When these, these so-called travelers, who were not actually travelers, came to, to Joshua and to the people of Israel and said, hey, we are travelers and we are just looking to come and, and take part in your, your band and we, we know what you have done to these other kingdoms, how you've destroyed them and we seek just to be your servants. Could you just let us in? Let us serve you in this way. Please don't kill us. Well, what is it that the Israelites were commanded to do? Kill all the inhabitants of the land. That was their mission. But what did they do here? They were deceived. And they said, well, that sounds reasonable. Sure, you can join with us. They partnered up with them and ultimately were deceived. And you know what Joshua tells us? The book of Joshua says the reason they were deceived, the reason they sinned was because they failed to seek the counsel of the Lord. In all things, we are called to come before the Lord to seek his counsel. Even in the seemingly mundane things, we are called to seek the counsel 
of God. Like the first portion of this text, this section is filled with these two things, prayer and providence. Then in the last verse, we see again the providence of God in the beginnings of his church. Where in verse 26, we have this, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, it may seem strange to us to cast lots uh, for this decision, but it was very common for the people of God all throughout their history to do this. It was not, uh, as we sometimes think of it, a form of gambling or, or anything like that, but rather this was an appropriate way for them to discern the will of God. All throughout the, no the Old Testament, this is how the will of God is discerned regularly over and over again. And so here in Acts, again, they seek to discern the will of God as they have brought forward these two men to determine who it is that would be the apostle. And the purpose of doing it this way, rather than just voting amongst themselves, because they could have done that, right? They could have said, all right, everyone take a scrap of paper, write down uh, the name. You can either put uh, Matthias or you can put, uh, you can put Justice or you can put any of his other names. That's fine. Just write down one of his names and whoever gets the most votes, that's the next apostle. They could have done it that way, couldn't they? Why didn't they? It was not so that they wouldn't uh, be engaging in favoritism. It was not to avoid hurt feelings. It was to ensure that this apostle, like all the other apostles, was selected by Christ, was selected by God, not by men. For that is the only way that apostles are instituted, those who are selected directly by God. Here again, we see the providence of God at work. In Proverbs Chapter 16, verse 33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even the casting of lots is not something that is random to God. He is not sitting over the, the casting of lots saying, Oh, I wonder who it's going to be. I hope it's Matthias. No. In this, as in everything else, God is sovereign. It's every decision is from him. God said, Matthias. And that is the lot that was found. That is the lot that was cast. And with the casting of this lot, the stage was now set for the next scene of this amazing story. For the explosive power of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the kingdom of God as we will see next week as we begin our, our look into Acts chapter 2. But let me say something. We look at Acts chapter 2, and, and you know what's coming there. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. We see Peter preaching this amazing sermon. We see speaking in tongues. We see, we see fire. We see all these things, and we say, wow, God is so providentially there. He is so sovereign. Look at this amazing thing that's happened that God has done. But I'm here to tell you today that the sovereignty of God and his providence is just as equally on display here in Acts chapter 1 as it is in Acts chapter 2. God's sovereignty is just as equally over the mundane as it is over the amazing, over the supernatural, over the, the big, amazing things. We forget that, though, don't we? Because what kind of lives do we live? Don't we live Acts 1 lives more than we live Acts chapter 2 lives? We do not see these amazing movements of the, of the Holy Spirit doing miraculous things, healings over here, prophecies over here, tongues over here. Can we conclude then that we do not see the power of God at work, that he is not sovereign over our lives? Absolutely not. Because nothing has changed in God from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2. 
Let us not be jealous of the supernatural. Let us not be jealous of the amazing things that we don't get to experience in our lives. And let us stand in awe at the sovereignty of God that every single thing that happens in our lives, both good, both bad, both mundane, each and every bit of it is ordained by God for our good and for his glory. And church family, let us take joy in that. Let us take comfort in that. That in all things, God's purposes are accomplished. Even the mundane, even these things show us the providence of God at work. Therefore, we can trust. We can trust that whatever it is that we face, again, good, bad, or boring, God has a plan in that. And we are to be faithful and trust in him every step of the way. Let's pray.